most of marketing talks about this idea of the funnel. If you're not familiar with it, buckle up. If you are, your eyes are already rolling. Picture a funnel, you know, broad on top, narrow at the bottom. It runs through the different stages of people's potential relationship with you and your brand. So at the top is awareness, people that know you exist. And all the way at the bottom are people who buy from you or even further down, people who are loyal. And then the furthest down is people who advocate for you. So you go from passively aware to very actively in favor and evangelizing a single brand or cause. That's the funnel. More people know you exist at the top than will ever buy from you or recommend you at the bottom. It's no secret that this approach to marketing is broken, but it's still pretty ubiquitous. So let me propose a different visual we can use to think about our work, especially when that work involves a podcast. Here we go. Imagine a series of concentric circles. You know that concept, right? It's like a, a bullseye. The middle tiny circle gives way to a slightly larger circle outside it, a slightly larger circle outside that, and on and on those circles emanate out from the center. The outermost circle in this idea is total strangers, people who have no idea you exist. The innermost circle is for superfans. I think great marketing is about going a few circles out from those superfans to, you know, casual observers or passive audience, folks that are somewhat interested in what you have to offer. Maybe they're even reading you or following you on social media. They're a little bit more active than just aware of you, but they're definitely not superfans. I think marketing is going out to those lukewarm relationships and ensuring they become superfans. And then if we can do that, if we can move them more tightly into the center of those circles, those superfans will evangelize our cause out to the outermost circles. The problem with marketing is we assume we do that. We assume that we're making, say, a podcast that's capable of turning passive audience into active superfans. And then when it doesn't happen organically for us, in other words, people are not talking about our work, we brute force our way to strangers. Now this makes no sense from a relationship standpoint, nor does it make any sense from a dollars and cents standpoint. It's an inefficient, ineffective, rather expensive way to do marketing because we go out to people cold. The best marketing today is about bringing people way into your corner or into the center of those circles. The smart marketing is about taking some people who are somewhat interested in you and making them incredibly vocal superfans. And then they go get you new people for free. And it just so happens that in this concentric circle view of marketing, shows are the engine driving it all. Shows are about depth in a world trending shallow. Shows are built expressly for time spent, for holding attention, not just grabbing it. Shows are like relationship accelerants. And shows are the natural thing we talk about most commonly with friends and family. They yield word of mouth, if we do this right. And the show we dissect today did it right. It is a masterclass in how one brand can use a podcast to go deeper in a way that, honestly, a lot of us probably dream of doing. So how did this showrunner get buy-in for such a project? How did he wind up as the reluctant host on top of that? 
And what tiny things went into their creative that actually created a deep connection to the content and to the brand? That's coming up today. Oh, and I'm also trying something brand new at the very end of our episode today. All the way beyond the credits, the last thing you're going to hear is a new segment we're trying, and it's for you, that is, if you love podcasting. So stick around all the way till the end, past the credits, to check that out. I want to know how to do the things you do. A thing, a two, a three that only comes from you. Hey there, hi, and hello. I'm Jay Akunzo. I'm the founder of Marketing Showrunners. We're a media and education company that helps makers and marketers use their voices to make a difference. And this is Three Clips, where we believe that creativity does not mean big. It's just the sum total of lots of little choices all bunched together. See, creativity happens in the minutia. So if you're seeing your favorite podcast out there or favorite anything, you're seeing the final product. But what went on inside was a lot of little hidden things that any of us could do. And so this show tries to put those things on display, specifically the things that go into making great podcasts. And today's podcast that we dissect is one of the best from any brand that we've chosen so far. But before we get there today, Here's a quick message about our podcasting workshops from a recent summer graduate, Evelyn Hartz. For me personally, I started the program uh, with an idea that was pretty run-of-the-mill. And through workshopping the idea with Jay and others in the program, I was able to to really uh, start a podcast that, that I'm really passionate about building and, and pursuing. And Jay, is a, he, he's a true craftsman, and Showrunner Sessions teaches you the craft of building an audience, um, not just building a podcast, but, but how to build an audience. And that's the stuff that people say you can't teach. But through this program, I, I feel much more confident in my abilities to go do it and uh, feel well-equipped to continue improving on my, my podcast for years to come. So absolutely sign up for the program. It's, it's awesome. Enrollment is now open for our next cohort of the Showrunner Sessions. These are online, interactive, cohort-based workshops where we do real work on your real show. Half our students launch a new podcast and half level up an existing show. This cohort kicks off September 7th, 2020. So again, enrollment is open right now. You'll leave that session knowing how to use your podcast to make a difference. Make somebody's favorite show. Not relevant content, but their favorite podcast. As a bonus, you can use the code JLOVESME for a discount. Check your show notes for a link or visit marketingshowrunners.com and click the workshop tab at the top to learn more. Again, you can use the discount code JLOVESME because I do. All right, let's dig into today's podcast. Today, we look into a show called Breaking Brand with its host, Ash Reed. Ash was one of the lead voices on the show, not only publicly as the host, but also internally at his company, the software firm Buffer. Ash was the reason this show exists. He was the idea guy, and he also helped do a lot of the production work too, and not to mention the marketing, because he's a marketing showrunner. At Buffer, they make social media marketing tools, things to help you, for example, schedule and measure your social media content. And this was not Buffer's first show. It was Ash's first time as a show host, and he learned a ton, which we will learn from as well. Uh, But this was not Buffer's first show, yet it was their most atypical to date. 
Buffer is seriously investing in podcasting right now. For years, they've run a newsy podcast called The Science of Social Media, which is a short-form, co-hosted podcast that tracks the latest trends in social media technology and marketing. In August 2020, Buffer also partnered with another firm, the video tech platform Wistia, full disclosure, one of our partners and sponsors. They partnered with Wistia to create an audio-only conference all about building brands that last. It's called Built to Last. So Breaking Brand is their second of the three shows, wedged right between their flagship Science of Social Media and their experimental audio conference Built to Last. Breaking Brand is also way different than what most B2B podcasts are in such a refreshing way, and I think it represents a model for what more of us should be doing. It was a single story told across multiple episodes with a narrator, many voices per episode, and lots of delicious editing. Both the sound, which is probably what you thought of when I said editing, but also the story. See, we can rely heavily on our ability to write as makers and marketers, to make better podcasts. The bottom line, Ash took a chance. It paid off. How? Why? Who? When? What the? And also, can we? Can we? Please? What's something you wish you could go back in time and tell yourself? You know, what would you do differently given what you know now about making this kind of highly produced show? Honestly, it would be like planning. I think I would focus a lot more on the upfront of the show, right? So like, what is the specific message we're trying to get across? What is the exact audience? And I think, yeah, just putting more work in upfront because I think that pays off like 10 times on the back end of finished production. And it's something that I don't think you realize until you've actually produced the show, how much the upfront work impacts the end result. And it's very easy to try and run before you're walking, right? And just like go headfirst into production. And I think if you're just starting out, that's probably a good thing in a way, just to kind of get your toes wet and start producing something. But I would say by understanding the audience and the message of the show, you're gonna see far better results. It's it's something that we learned with Breaking Brand and we'll probably touch on this later, but that show just kind of fell to us. We were kind of right time, right place, speaking to the right people. And as soon as we learned about the story, we knew it had to be a podcast. And I focused so much on making sure we could tell that story and lining up all of the production, that how we're actually gonna present this story to our audience, how we're gonna market it, came in after post-production as we were planning to launch. And I think, we probably could have had an even better, more successful launch had I flipped things around and focused on the message first. I love that you said that because I think people tend to get pretty fervent and almost like they have a religion around, well, you know, you can over plan and too much planning is what plagues most of marketing and we don't need any more decks and process holds us back. So let's just ship a bunch of work. And I think, you know, that works, like you said, in some cases, but when you have a set premise you know, the angle into the topic where you're not just using it, the show to talk about certain topics or to certain people, you're actually like, hey, the reason the show exists is to achieve this purpose for you, the listener. And by the way, this is probably who you are. Everything else tends to fall into place. Like I even think about this show, the questions I'm going to ask you, I didn't plan all of them. I have some planned out and I'll ditch some as soon as you say something interesting and off the plan and we'll pursue that. But the reason I'm coming up with the clips I picked and why I'm talking to you and how we're going to construct this episode, like all of it 
It's because I'm like paranoid that the listener is going to leave at any time, you know? And so if you have no plan, if you have no uh, approach, both in the content and, to, and about who you're speaking to, it really can fall flat. And so I love that you said planning. Um, yeah. Yeah, do you have an I example think, of a place where that applies? Yeah, I think just to kind of back on your point, I would say like, um, you know, with knowing the message in the audience, like every story can go in a thousand different directions, right? So like right. telling the breaking brand story for the audience of small direct consumer businesses that use Buffer is very, very different to how maybe like a New York Times editorial might tell the story. And I think knowing that just helps you to get the direction of your show and how you want to tell the story because you can just approach it from almost an unlimited amount of angles. And yeah, I think to kind of answer your question, the um, the way we've approached Built to Last, which is our latest series that we're working on with Wistia. Um, it's being presented as an audio-first conference, so like a virtual conference that doesn't trap you in front of your laptop all day. Um, so something you're free to listen to as you kind of move around and, and go about your day. And with that one, we really took the lesson of breaking brand. And the first thing I done was put together a pitch document for our team internally. And then once we got the go-ahead to move a bit further with it, start exploring it. It was like, well, what's the message? Like, what is the copy that's going to appear on the landing page for this show? How are we going to sell this to our audience? How are we going to get signups? And, you know, I think that's really helped to connect with people and hopefully helped me to program the content to deliver what the audience is expecting because we've put so much work in up front to really understand that and to plan exactly what we want this show to be and who we want it to be for. Why do you think that's something that we learn after the fact? <laughs> what is it about us that, you know, as a community that we think that, you know, we can wing it or that we don't need to put structure to it? <laughs> I don't know. Like, this seems like something you're speaking to my core here. And I'm wondering, like, it seems obvious when you say it, but it still holds true. It does. You know, why? <laughs> I think it's the excitement. <laughs> you know, like. That's fair. Sitting and, I mean, I do enjoy the messaging side of it, but it's not as fun as planning a series, thinking about characters, trying to break down how you want to tell a story, you know, diving into recordings, talking to partners and agencies you might work with. Like that's the stuff that really I think gets me excited and makes me feel like the ball is rolling. Like I think if you're to kind of use the snowball analogy, right? Like I think once you start getting things rolling and getting, you know, the snowball rolling down the hill and getting bigger and bigger that's when it gets exciting to me. And I think the planning side is maybe the bit before that. It's, um, yeah, it's hard to, it maybe doesn't build momentum quite as quick or feel as productive. Like spending a day planning might be the most important thing you can do. But if you finish the day and you're like, well, today I've organized three interviews, that kind of feels more productive. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But there, I mean, there's only three stages to this. There's pre-production, production, post-production, post and all three, I think, should carry their own weight. Um, but the order of operations is very important. Like you, you should not just go to production. Pre-production is imminently important. Um, but I, I do want to pull on that excitement that you mentioned. So let's talk about Breaking Brand as a show. There are two other shows. You mentioned uh, the third one, but the first one ever that Buffer put out, Science of Social Media, has been going for years now. So people can check that out if they're in social media marketing or they're interested in the business of social media, the science of social media. And that's a, a newsy short form show with two hosts. 
Breaking Brand was your second show. And the third is this audio conference um, with Wistia. So we'll, we'll touch on that at the very end. But I want to go really deep into Breaking Brand because it's such an atypical approach. It's not interviewing a bunch of experts and just publishing the interview untouched. It's not a collection of people across the industry. It's one company's story told in five parts. Um, so for the unacquainted, can you just sum up what that show is about? It follows the journey of a company called Pattern Brands, which is a direct-to-consumer business selling homeware goods. And it was born out of one of the world's best branding agencies called Gin Lane. And at the time they launched Pattern, Gin Lane was responsible for more than 50 startups worth a combined $15 billion. And they were the best of the best well, how did you even, how did you hear about this story? I mean, like, this is something that maybe was covered in the news or maybe someone sent you and like anybody could have done this story. Yeah, a lot of it was luck. And I'm going to quote Emmett from Breaking Brand here as um, refreshing myself earlier and listening to, back to some of the episodes. And one of the things Emmett mentioned is like, luck is just showing up in the right place at the right time until lightning strikes. And at Buffer, we have a small subset of our, our customers that are direct to consumer brands. And they're actually some of our best customers. They use the most advanced social media features. Social is so important to their business. And we were trying to kind of think of a show that we could create that appealed to them. For you, you're the host of the show. I want to get into your role a little bit more. Um, you mentioned that the excitement can cause us to skip the planning phase. Why was this story exciting to you personally? I think the people involved, right? So as I was learning about direct-to-consumer, like I'm not an e-commerce expert, I'm not a direct-to-consumer expert, but the whole thing came about because I wanted to write a story about how to build a brand. And as I was researching the direct-to-consumer industry, most of the success stories come out of free agencies. And that's Red Antler, Partners in Spade, and Gin Lane. And I reached out to Emmett, the co-founder of Gin Lane, and just said, I want to write a story like what are your secrets to creating brands that break through the noise and and customers love from day one and we had a bit of a back and forth over email and then one day he just said phone me like there's a bigger story here so immediately i just picked up my phone called him and i remember like he answered he was kind of walking through the streets of new york like kind of rushing a little bit and was just like here's what's happening we're closing down gin lane we're launching pattern I don't know what we can do, but maybe there's something bigger than just a blog post here. And it was only like a five minute phone call, but I just remember it finishing and just like going straight to the buffer slack and just excitedly typing away messages to different members of our team saying like, I don't know what we need to do, but like, we need to do something here. Like this is an opportunity. And at that time we were looking for an idea for a second podcast. And yeah, I was just like, this is it. How do you get to the point where people are like, yeah, go ahead. You should do that. Like, here's some company money and your time. Go go for it. Yeah. So there's a couple of things to touch on there. I think the first is at Buffer, we have a budget put aside every year for like contractors, freelancers, basically to bring in expertise to the team that we don't really know that we need at the start of the year. So that's really helpful to kind of always have a bit of budget for something like this to pop up. But then getting permission to spend it is a completely different battle. And I think there was kind of a number of approaches and it was almost like 
presenting it to our VP of marketing and our leadership team as, as a can't lose situation, right? So yeah, the end goal is we produce a podcast and it's a series that brings us loads of customers, loyal customers. It's a series that people engage with, they spend hours listening to. And yeah, that's the end goal. That's what we're hoping to do. We're hoping to create a show that a small niche audience of direct consumer businesses will listen to and will engage with and will spend a lot of time with our brand. But that's not the only win. Like, you know, at the least, I'm going to be spending like 10 hours learning from these people, from, you know, the best brand builders in the world. Like these aren't just like your average creatives. They are responsible for some of the biggest, most successful startups of the last decade. That time alone that I'm spending in studio with them is probably worth what we're going to put to the budget to produce this show. That's genius. So it's almost like internally, everybody who's listening to the show on Buffer's team is getting this crash course from these world-class people who do not spend time teaching others what they do. Yeah, like when I spoke to Emmett, like, um, you know, going back to that phone call where he told me about it, one line that he said to me that kind of really stuck with me was like, we haven't done any PR. Like Gin Lane's been around for 10 years, but we've never told our story. And yeah, to me, that was like, well, this is almost like masterclass.com, right? You've got Steph Curry teaching shooting. You've got Gordon Ramsay teaching cooking. Well, like we've got Gin Lane teaching brand building. Even if just our 90 person team spends an hour and a half listening to this podcast, learning about the direct consumer industry and understanding what it takes to build a brand better, that's going to pay off big time for the business in the long run. That's genius. That's genius. So let's, I mean, people are hopefully pretty excited when they hear you describe this. Let's go to the first clip. And so this is a clip from episode one. I actually noticed it was part of the trailer too, which is really smart, but episode one plays it back because obviously you no guarantee people will listen to the trailer. Maybe they don't discover it. Maybe they go right to episode one, or maybe they just decide to skip a trailer because they see episode one is sitting waiting for them. So that's just the context I want to give to the listener of three clips. Let's go to this, the first moment um, from Breaking Brand, a show by Buffer, the first thing you hear in episode one. Whether you know it or not, chances are you've come across the work of the Gin Lane team. This is the story of Harry's. At Smile Direct Club, we believe everyone deserves a smile they'll love. From brands they've taken to market. Harry's, him's, hers. Brands they've worked with at an early stage. You know, Smile Direct Club, Sweetgreen, Quip as well as the industry leaders. Warby Parker, Bonobos, and Everlane as well. It's a business that was at the top of its game, so much so that Fortune 100 companies were seeking them out. This is Emmett Shine, co-founder of Gin Lane. We've helped launch, not just grow, over 50 businesses over the past decade that are now worth collectively $15 billion. But just when Gin Lane had seemingly reached the top, they did something unexpected. They shut down the business in search of a new challenge. But we'll get to that in a bit. My name is Ash Reed. I'm editorial director for Buffer, and our mission is to help you build your brand and connect with your customers online. This is our new podcast, Breaking Brand. In this new Buffer original series, we're exploring and bringing to light strategies and secrets from brands at the top of their game. We're sharing insight into innovative thinking and ideas from those at the forefront of their industries. And to get us started, over the next five episodes, we'll tell you about the journey of one truly groundbreaking company, the New York City-based agency, Gin Lane. Haven't heard of them? Well, 
Gin Lane is basically known as the Rolls Royce of branding agencies within the ecosystem of direct consumer brands, even non-direct consumer brands that are looking to elevate their brand equity and brand status within the marketplace. That's Nick Sharma, a New York City-based direct consumer consultant and strategist for brands. And in case you're new to the branding business, brand equity refers to how the customer sees the overall brand as opposed to just the product. It's their perception of the brand that influences their desire to buy the products associated with that brand. Um, thoughts, comments, concerns, cringes for hearing yourself back like that. Yeah, uh, I'm still not used to it. <laughs> um, yeah, to be honest, I was a very reluctant host of this show. Um, so I didn't intend it, intend to host it, um, but I was just so close to the project and kind of working with our production company message heard on it and... It came down to the point where it's like, who's going to host this? And it kind of just didn't make sense for anyone else to do it because I was doing the interviews with the team. I was close to the story. I had kind of built the relationship with the Gin Lane team and it, yeah, just made sense for me to do it. So yeah, reluctant host, but still not used to hearing myself back on audio. What do you notice? Like in your performance, what do you notice? I think um, just generally this the sound of my voice. I think I'd like to be a bit more emotive. Like I'm quite an introverted person. Um, yeah. I don't have much, uh, I don't know. There aren't too many levels to my voice. Like uh, you could tell me I've won the lottery and I'd sound exactly like I do now. Um, so cool. Cool. Yeah. yeah I think great. that's it. Just like getting used to hearing yourself. Yeah. It's funny because your, your voice is now a creative tool as a marketer. It always was like some, but some people used it more fully than others historically, whether they did video or they were on a stage giving a speech, but certainly internally when you communicate um, to your teammates, but now it's like literally a performative tool. And what I find is there's a performance spectrum you can picture in your brain where on the left side of that spectrum, it's like over the top dramatic acting like Shakespeare in the park style acting. And on the right side, there's talking to your partner or child. And because there you're not trying to perform at all. And it's almost like if you really listen to the tape of that, you would sound bored, right? It's like there's no there's a reason where your partner, if you're in a committed relationship, is sometimes like, are you okay? Because it's like we just naturally talk in a bored sounding fashion when we're just not trying. And I think what you need to do, you being general hosts, we're all I'm doing this right now, actually. You need to perform it slightly bigger than you think you need to. Like in your head, it'll sound a little bit too big, but in the recording and to the listener, you'll hit this sweet spot. So if you want to sound like a casual friend, you need to sound like a work presentation in your head. If you want to sound like a professional presenter, and there are some shows where you're like a show host voice and welcome to the show. And like, you need to really overperform that like a dramatic actor because it'll come back down when listeners hear it. So you're always like performing like a little bit bigger than you think you need to, because then it'll sound good. And it's this total like mind maze you have to wander through because it's so close to you. It's your person. Yeah, definitely. I think it really helped me to be in a studio. So I think we were, you know, as I, I wasn't in my bedroom recording this. We were in a recording studio in London and Sandra, who's our producer, she was always in my ear kind of like sit up straight, smile, say that louder, sound more like, sound more excited. And I think those prompts really help because it's it kind of allows you to get away from yourself a little bit and just to kind of you know ignore everything else and kind of just focus on what you're doing 
What what does a production company like the one you work with do on the show? Because you mentioned, like, obviously, you know, there's different flavors of making shows. There's some marketers that manage the budgets of the agencies and the agency does everything. There's the total in-house production. There's the in-house production that relies on freelancers. And then there's a step a little bit further outside your walls or your company, which is what you did, which is work with a production company. What is their value and what's your interaction with them? Like, what are they owning? What are you owning? Walk us through that. Yeah, so we had a we had a really really close relationship with Message Heard throughout this production, and I think it all goes back to that first thought I had of don't mess this up. And it was such a a big opportunity to tell this story that I wanted to do it justice. And you know, when I looked at myself and the team at Buffer, like we've produced the science of social media in house, we know how to do that, but we don't know how to tell a story. Like we don't know how to tell a five part narrative story about a business reinventing itself. And that really helps us to kind of have, I think, an outside voice to, you know, be able to tell us how to shape the show. You know, I spend a few days in their office just like putting post-it notes up on the wall, like rejigging things. And I think they also just brought a level of professionalism to it that we wouldn't have in the, you know, this show was recorded in studios. So like I was in London, um, the Gin Lane team would come to a studio in New York for recording sessions. We had producers on the ground in New York following them around. And that's all stuff that like, maybe I could have done, but like, I don't speak that language. I've not managed a production like that. I don't know how to find a good sound engineer in New York. I don't know how to book a studio in London, like all these really little things that to them a second nature, to me is a completely different world. What's the most memorable or transformative thing that they taught you that you'll keep with you and benefit from in the rest of your work? Genuinely, it was like the storytelling elements of it, right? So, you know, I my background is is in writing and blogging. So, you know, I know how to tell a story from that perspective, but their focus was on like the narrative arc of the series as a whole, but then also within each episode, what's the narrative of that episode? Where do we start? What signposts do we leave? How do we encourage people to continue listening? Where do we break? What's the cliffhanger? And there's so much to it that like so many times throughout the process, I was just so relieved that we had hired them because I knew we were doing the story justice. I don't know if this is what struck you about the process, but I remember uh, you know, in different capacities, I've worked in sports journalism. So I've worked with, you know, like a print editorial team. Then I worked in marketing. So I was doing pretty squarely what you were doing, you know, a lot of blogging and, you know, telling little anecdotes, but you're not really doing this big narrative arc. And then I start making shows and it's like some parts of me went back to my days as an English literature major and aspiring journalist. And then other parts of me were like, I have gaps in my knowledge of how to do this stuff. I need to figure it out. But what I find is a story is just this like almost accordion of like rising and falling tension. And sometimes that happens in the micro. It's like the intro should raise some tension that you should then get a resolution for by the end of the episode at the latest. But then you should have another question leading you to the next episode if it's one serialized story. And then the whole series has tension. You want to see where it all goes and then come to the conclusion at the end. And so like the missing piece to me in so many brand built experiences, doesn't matter if it's a show or not, is the unwillingness to say, and here's our next open-ended question, or aren't you wondering this, or here's a detail that you really want resolved, or a moment that feels uncomfortable and you want it to feel back to comfortable, and letting people actually live there 
in the audience for a moment. Like instead of being like, so Ash wanted to make a show. Then it was really, really hard for this one moment in time where he didn't know who to work with. And then he found this partner of his, this production agency, and then everything was great. Let's talk to Ash about how it was all great. That's kind of like the marketing arc. Whereas I find that storytelling is just like micro and macro moments of introducing and resolving tension. Yeah, that 100% resonates. I think pushing for tension was definitely something I took away from working with the team. And I think like the journalistic angle of like, what is the story here? Because from the, on the surface, yeah, the story is one of the world's best branding agencies flipping its business and launching a new direct consumer brand. But within that, there's like, there's the tension of why were they not fulfilled with running this hugely successful agency? And, you know, the story that I thought was there was just one angle of this story. It was one part of the story. Beneath that, there was like, feeling unfulfilled with their day-to-day work. There was this pang to do something bigger with their careers and something more impactful. There was just like just these stories of like burnout and not feeling happy after work and work consuming your life. And all of this kind of came out just from pushing for the tensions. Like I remember we went into one pre-interview call where we had um, – the pattern brand team and their PR agency and myself and message heard on the call. And we had like 45 minutes to figure out like, what is this story? And that really helped us to shape like the opening couple of episodes of the series. And, you know, what was actually the tension going on behind the scenes was like, they were hugely successful, but it didn't feel that rewarding to them. They needed to do something bigger. They craved something more impactful. And without kind of pushing for the tension and just kind of focusing on the, let's tell the story of how they build brands, we miss out on so much of what makes the series a gripping, engaging listen. Right. There, uh, this American Life has this style of telling stories where they basically, and this is common across lots of storytelling vehicles. I just have that show on the brain because I'm, I'm reading a book, um, which by the way, everybody in show running should read called Out on the Wire because they follow, like you followed Jim Lane transforming into pattern brands. This book and the author Jessica Abel follows the world class podcast production teams like This American Life and Snap Judgment and Radio Lab and 99% Invisible. So the book's called Out on the Wire. And what I've learned recently in reading that is there's this type of storytelling, and This American Life not pioneered it, but certainly brought it into podcasting fame, where you give a little anecdote and then you extrapolate out to the universal lesson that the listener can relate to. So it's like they were building this successful branding agency. And then you might play a little clip of them succeeding. But the whole time they were thinking about, is this actually fulfilling to me? And then you play a clip of them questioning their motives. And then you step out of the story and you're like, and that's kind of the thing about our work. We try to convince ourselves that we are fulfilled, but then we, you know, encounter these things and no amount of financial success or acclaim can make up for the fact that something isn't sitting right with us. Right? So it's like, give a story, give an insight, give another story, give another insight, on and on and on. Um, and I found that you guys did that really, really well. And so I I do want to move to the second clip because it kind of, to me, represents a challenge we all face in trying to craft stories as well as you did. And I want to unpack how you came at this challenge. But before we get there, just one final question about the backstory of the show, about the kind of strategy and crafting that, that narrative. I notice you position this as a show level brand bigger than this series. 
So in episode one's intro, you talk about this is what we do on the show. And in season one or in the next five episodes, we're following Jin Lane. Talk to me about why that was so important. Yeah. So I think for us, it was just really important to leave it open to do something more with this series, right? Like we're investing, you know, it's a significant investment for Buffer. It was a lot of time, you know, a significant amount of our budget. And we just kind of wanted to leave it there to be something bigger than just this series if we want to. If we want to explore it, if we want to go back and do a series with Pattern to follow up, or if we want to explore another story, then yeah, we can do that. And I think kind of actually after the first series aired and finished, we kind of revisited it and said, like, what is breaking brand? Like, what is it to buffer? Yes. And we kind of decided that breaking brand is a series or it's a podcast, it's a show about pivotal moments in companies. And, you know, it's for series one, it was the moment of Jin Lane pivoting to pattern. It was a key moment in their history. It was a moment that changed them forever. But in season two, it could be another brand going from zero to one launching, or it could be an existing brand kind of going through a repositioning and rebrand. It's just a show that explores pivotal moments in interesting, exciting companies. And by leaving that open, I think it enables us to kind of revisit this at at any time in the future. Well, and and the goal is not to create a podcast or even five episodes, right? The goal is always to create brand IP. Like, would it pass the t-shirt test? Would a super fan put... Uh, the the logo or a phrase that's common on the show on their t-shirt or on their hat, you know, can they, is there a digital event you can spin out or, you know, lots of, we talk about the promotional content, like, oh, we're writing a series of blog posts to get people to the show. What we fail to do, I think, is how do we build community around the ideas of this show? Like, how do we spark a movement that makes a difference for the audience and the vehicle that's at the core of it is the show, but there's all sorts of things you can do. And I even think of the name Breaking Brand as like, if you do talk to somebody about their story going zero to one, it shouldn't just be, it was hard to go zero to one. I think, I think the magic of this show is something was working and then suddenly it wasn't like, to me, that's the tension. That's the inherent story, the narrative across gin lane to pattern brands that you could repeat, right? It's like, cause it's about the breaking of the brand, not the building, not the starting, not the glitz and glamor. It's about something working and then not. And it like it either it broke or you're breaking it what now? And there's a lot of flavors and, and different permutations of that, that, that leave this really rife for reinvention and longevity. So I, I get really excited about this being an original premise under which you could do lots of stories. And I have no idea if that resonates at all with you, but that when I heard the name, that's what I thought of. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it was one of those things that again, in the moment, it was like, we were so excited about just telling this Jin Lane and Patton story, but we just didn't want to create something that was forever tied to just being these five episodes. We wanted right. it to be something that we can do more with. And, you know, I think Breaking Brand in the future, like it, it doesn't even have to be a podcast series. Maybe it can be podcast and video. Maybe we can create resources to go along with it. I think it's in itself, it's kind of like you say, a, a piece of IP that Buffer owns and that we can expand on and invest in moving forwards for, you know, as long as we want to. Right. Um, there are some challenges along the way. And so this next clip I want to play is from about five minutes into episode one. So we're sticking in the same episode for now. And I think it speaks to a challenge a lot of us face. So let's play the clip. We'll come back and talk about that challenge and and how you, Ash, and your partners got over it. 
started freelancing to make money in college and started doing that with friends that I'd met. And by senior year, we were doing it so much that we went to do that full time. And really the story with- the So actually is, uh, the Gin Lane name was inspired by a relatively well-known street in uh, Southampton, New York. You know, well-known street. And I wanted to, you know- It came about when Emmett and his colleagues were having trouble getting paid. So he rebranded from a freelancer to an agency and incorporated in order to get his clients to take him more seriously. And that worked. And so, you know, we had to actually incorporate and set up a bank account to cast checks. And, you know, after a few years of doing that, we decided to really make a go of it as an agency. And we knew a lot of the creative set from downtown New York. I think we've always gravitated towards good, talented people and, you know, soon got picked up. And Stella McCartney, Adidas, Theory, Helmut Lang, uh, that kind of fashion set uh, we got introduced to. In my conversation with Emmett, a lot of interesting points struck me about his story. Very early on, it was clear that he was thoughtful about the state of his industry and where it was headed. He knew how to spot gaps in the market, and he used that to his and Jin Lane's advantage. At the time, for digital, there wasn't a lot of design theory on creating interfaces and logic that were sophisticated but didn't overpower the content. With that unique approach, word spread quickly that they were doing something new and fresh and interesting. So if the first clip and everything we spoke to just now was about the first challenge we face as podcasters which is saying something that matters. And I think this show does that. Exploring a story that matters, teasing out lessons that matter, having a premise that matters to the audience, saying something that matters. This clip speaks to the next challenge we'll face. Because once you give somebody motivation to subscribe and hang out a while, you need to give them reason to hang out, to stay. So from Say Something That Matters, this clip now speaks to how do you get them to the end, which I think is the golden rule of show running, get them to the end. And I notice here it's this interweaving of what I always consider the most boring tape, especially in a business show, which is the person giving the backstory, the person giving the bio. You can even hear the energy leaving their voice or the up speaking or the, you know, they're rattling off a list and, uh, you know, started my career at Google and then uh, I went to this company and then, oh no, actually that was, it's awful. And so you wove in some voiceover. I'm curious about how you tried to take what could have just been one episode with the founder of Jin Lane doing the end-to-end story, and you're really now stretching it out over five episodes, which kind of puts you at risk at some of these moments, like, aren't that interesting? How much did you rely on the writing, uh, either yourself or with your partners? Yes, I think there's a couple of really interesting points here that you've raised. And I think the first thing is like kind of making people care and giving people a reason to care. And I think we touched on that in the first clip, you know, these are the superstars of branding. They know what they're doing. But what I really like about this clip is it kind of shows that like Emmett started out from nothing. Like he worked his way here. He's not this like superstar. And I think that kind of helps. And there's a couple of points in the series where I think we try and make it kind of relatable. And I think this introduction really helps there. And, you know, what, was probably a five minute story from Emmett in the recording in the interview. Like he's, Emmett's an amazing guest, um, but he like, he speaks in paragraphs and he's so elaborate in the way he talks and descriptive. And you probably could include a lot of that and not get too bored, but by just kind of picking out, letting him tell his story and then picking out highlights, I think we can get to the meatier parts of the topic quicker. 
we can set the scene, we can give you just enough to know about Emmett's story and, and to kind of like set the scene and let you know where this story is beginning. But we can kind of skim over it and make it interesting by kind of interweaving Emmett's audio and then my voiceover to kind of just pick out one or two highlights of what Emmett says in maybe two minutes. We can cut to like 10 seconds. It's so telling because, and you know, maybe there's a little deference going on in a lot of brand built shows, but the guests are often allowed to just rant forever. And but interruptions, gentle interruptions, corrections, follow ups, you know, hey, I actually disagree with what you said there, Ash. I'm, I'm wondering why. Can you just clarify this point? Like things like that. And then later in post narration or narrating over or through or connecting points through narration you know, it, it kind of speaks to the fact that the guest will always own the details. They'll be able to tell you what happened and how they felt. Tell me about X. How did it feel when, why? But you, the host, the showrunner, the producer, you own the interestingness, right? You own the experience, the reason people would stick around. And if you feel that starting to creep in, like, oh, maybe they won't keep listening. This is boring. You have to step in, right? Because by the way, if you don't, the guest doesn't look good either because the guest sounds boring or the guest is not commanding 42 minutes of attention or however long it is. Um, so, you know, I think that's a realization a lot of people learn. I'm curious, though, like, was this your first time doing voiceover and writing for audio? What, what did you learn as a writer and marketer porting some of your skills over to audio for the first time? Yeah, make it sure. <laughs> to be honest, that's the the main takeaway for me was just like make the sentence is shorter. Um, you know, I tend to write for reading and that's very different to writing for audio. Like, you know, and I kind of only really realized that when practicing the voiceovers, when, you know, reading something in your head, it's it can seem easy to read, nice and short, but the second you're in a studio in front of a mic trying to read it, make it clear, enunciate, it's just so different. And yeah, I kind of learned from from Sandra, our producer, like make it shorter. She done a lot of the work on the scripts here to to really help me. And it was also just kind of like use really simple, like grammatical cues. So, you know, like a short sentence, dot, 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 pause, you know, bold, make this a bit louder, exciting, you know, italics, questions, all of these little signals just to kind of make it easier for you to kind of get how you need to be delivering this sentence. Yes. The script is equal parts, what you're saying and how you're saying it, right? It's the short sentences. It's the repetition because you might need to restate things certain ways so they don't miss it. Um, and then certainly it's ellipses, capital letters, italics, like all the things you said to convey to yourself. You know, sometimes you're writing it for yourself. You don't work with this, this Sandra. You know, you need to convey to yourself okay, uh, emphasize this, pause here, you know, dot, dot, dot. So we've talked about and played a clip for the first challenge, which is to say something that matters. Is the premise of the show powerful? Do people care? Are you giving them the motivation to subscribe? And I, I don't mean click a button and join a feed or a list. I mean, subscribe to the journey, subscribe to the belief system, to the ideas. Um, then you have get them to the end. And we played this last clip for that. How do you construct that experience? Obviously, there's a million things we can learn there. But in the interest of time, I want to move on to another challenge that we face, uh, which is deepen relationships. So now that you're saying something that matters, now that you're constructing an experience people spend time with, how do you connect those people both to you and the brand more fully and deeply and also just to the ideas, to the story, to the characters in the story? Um, you know, you have to go deeper 
within the context of a show because I think that's what a show is is good for. And the way you guys did that in episode two of Breaking Brand, I thought was so smart and so underutilized, which is you went outside the echo chamber. So I just want to play a clip for people listening about when you did that. And then again, we'll come back and make sense of it. When I left you last episode, the Gin Lane team, led by Camille, Nick, and Emmett, were winning massive contracts with Fortune 100 companies. They were at the top of their game, working with companies that had billions of dollars in market value. You know, it ended up not being really what we wanted. Yeah, we, we had people leaving, and it was because they were unhappy. The team was feeling burned out, but this wasn't an issue unique to Gin Lane. Many workers, especially millennials, have at some stage experienced some form of burnout. To learn more about the prevalence of this issue, we spoke to Erin Griffith, a New York Times journalist who covers startups and venture capital. Here's one of our producers, Max Miller, with Erin. Where are we right now? <laughs> okay, so we are in a kind of busy, slightly cavernous uh, coffee shop in Times Square, right across from Port Authority. Busy. Yeah. Busy is the key <laughs> idea. In January 2019, Erin was inspired to write a story on workplace culture, partly based on what she observed of the people and companies she reports on in San Francisco. She typically focuses on tech startups, the kind of businesses that tend to embrace the idea of performative workaholism. And she explains to us how this performative workaholism has manifested in a number of different sectors. And what I mean by that is we're not just working a lot of hours or um, you know, really, really dedicated to our jobs, but we're actually um, like performing that as this sort of Thing that we want to brag about and we're hustling and we are defining ourselves by our jobs and we are you know just sort of like wrapping our entire identity up in our ability to work and I observed that and I thought it was kind of bizarre because you know what happens when you lose that job or what happens when you realize that you don't like the job that much or what happens when the job doesn't actually fulfill you it's just a job walk me through the purpose of this. You know, when you're doing the story planning, or maybe it's made in post where you're like, hey, we need this. Where does that moment arise? Like, what, what is the purpose of that moment? I think in episode one, we'd kind of spent a lot of time establishing the characters, kind of making this, telling the story of their successes and how they became so great at what they do. And then in episode two, I think we really wanted to kind of open up and make this story feel a little bit more relatable to every listener. I think almost every millennial in the workforce has experienced some form of like burnout or pushing themselves too hard, being hard on themselves, working too much. And I think we just really wanted to kind of create a relatable moment that makes the listener kind of think, actually, like these people are just like me. Like I I know that struggle, like they have the same issues I do. And that was kind of really, really important. And for getting kind of Erin in from the New York Times, it was just like we wanted someone who could speak with authority from outside of Buffer and outside of Gin Lane that this issue is kind of bigger than just this one company, that it's something that's going on for a whole generation, really. And that actually, the shift that kind of Patton or Gin Lane were making by kind of moving away from the agency life that was making them feel burnout is something that's happening across the industry. Like companies are waking up to realizing that you can't push yourselves and your staff to the edge. And the this kind of performative workaholism is, is not what's best for people. And that section exists to make the characters and story relatable to everyone. And just to kind of comment on 
the bigger picture behind this, right? Like this is a big problem for for most a lot of the workforce right now. And and like you said, there's some establishing you have to do in the story at some point to answer some basic questions that are on people's minds. Who, what is this about? Where is this all going? Why is this interesting? You know, and establishing that early on, like episode one is important, but now it's like, okay, where do we go from here? And now here's that next moment of tension where it is relatable. You know, the, the, this American lifestyle, like here's a little anecdote. And then that's the thing about this. Like, here's the insight. If a listener were to ask you, because now you're, this section is very squarely for the listener, right? Obviously you're analyzing the story of Jin Lane moving to pattern brands, but it's a chance to speak to something universal and relatable, like you said. So if a listener is over your shoulder while you're making this show and they're like, Ash, this seems to have some potential. Like, I like, I'm liking what you're doing. And then they ask you this question, what's going to be different for me when I finish this series? How might you answer that? For me, I think a lot of it is kind of like a realization that success isn't what it seems from the outside. Um, you know, it's something I think a lot of us struggle with, something that I certainly see like, you know, you open up your social and you see everyone winning at life, everyone having a great time. And I think one of the things that really struck me from the kind of initial interviews with Jin Lane learning this story was that from the outside, I thought they were living the life. Like they had this amazingly successful company. Surely they were loving every minute. They were, you know, having hit after hit. I think Nick even mentioned in the interviews that of the brands that launched 25 out of 30 would be runaway successes. And I think from the outside, you can kind of look at that and say like, that's the dream they're living it, but for them, they weren't fulfilled. And I think it kind of shows that fulfillment isn't in what other people see. It's what you find. And I think that is something that this section was kind of there to say. And like, especially the opening, um, you know, I think you hear Nick saying like, we had people leaving. People weren't happy at Gin Lane. And that's just not the pitch you get from episode one. And I think this was a really important section just to kind of highlight that like hustle culture, like winning culture that you see on social media. Like it's not true to life. And it's even if you have what other people would see as success, like you might not feel that. And right. I think that was the takeaway or what I would hope people would take away from that section is like yeah. success is what you make it, not what someone else sees as success. Let's end here. What type of connection do you feel that you have now with the audience? What have you heard from the community that gives you the confidence that this was actually a good decision? A lot like the comments that kind of really hit home for me are the ones you see from people that are just like, this was different to what I was expecting. This isn't like a normal business show. This is seeing these people being vulnerable, transparently building a business actually kind of inspired me to do it. And I think like those are the comments that really make me feel proud. And I think like Buffer proud to kind of own this IP. It's not just about like how many people listen, like, yeah, the engagement was good. The download numbers were, were good, but to actually see people, you know, leaving reviews and comments saying like, I love this, this helped me, I think is really what the measure of success should be like if one person rethinks their brand or if one person maybe goes a little easier on themselves because not life isn't perfect like that's a good takeaway that's a, a result that's you know kind of it's not something that shows up in marketing spreadsheets but it's something that really matters and that's the kind of thing that's gonna in the long run make someone stay a buffer customer or 
prefer us over a competitor is that like we tell stories that they connect with and I think that's really important. Thanks for listening. Every time you hear this show, you're supporting independent creators over here trying to earn a living through our crafts. If you like that idea or you like this show, just skip the whole rating and review junk. Just don't even bother. Tell one friend about us, won't you? It's really, really hard to grow a podcast. Tell one human being who would benefit from this show. This episode was hosted, written, produced, and edited by me. Yes, I'm tired. And the original theme music was by Cardboard Rocket Chip. If you are a podcaster or an aspiring podcaster, if you want to use your show to support a mission or a brand, I hope you'll explore marketingshowrunners.com. Our mission is to help more people find and share their voices and make shows that make a difference to their careers, to their companies, but most importantly, to their communities. And again, our next workshop launches September 7th, 2020. Visit marketingshowrunners.com and click the workshops tab at the top or check your show notes for a link. Enrollment has been open for a few weeks and prices go up soon. The current students in this group coming up are already enrolling. They include entrepreneurs, content marketers, authors, a couple PhDs, a musician, several freelancers, and more, all from cities like Boston, New York, Seattle, Barcelona, Amsterdam, and Melbourne. Come make a show that makes a difference. And now there's a new segment I wanted to play for you called Play It Forward. So here's the deal. I want to ask every guest that we have to suggest a show that you won't find on the top of the charts that they want to show some love for. So here's the show that Ash suggested. It's a show I'm still listening to. I'm like a couple of episodes in, but it's called This Is Not A Drake Podcast. (laughs) And it's by CBC, the Canadian broadcast company. Um, But it basically explores the history of hip-hop in Toronto through the lens of Drake, but not about Drake, which I know sounds kind of confusing. Um, (laughs) But, you know, someone who's not from Toronto and doesn't know the artists that are kind of mentioned in the opening episodes, it's just a really gripping, well-produced narrative show that is definitely on my list of things I wish I'd made. Make sure you check out Ash's work. The shows are Breaking Brand and Built to Last. And of course, check out his recommended show to play it forward. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jay Akunzo, and I believe creating stuff is not about how many arrive. It's about serving those who stay. So thanks for staying with me, and I'll talk to you on the next episode of the show. See ya. See ya.